Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Porno's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics and about other Russian Eurasia related topics. Over the past couple of years, pollsters have registered an increasing division of the Russian society based on the age and the type of media consumption. The internet users, especially younger ones, are increasingly critical of the regime and of President Putin in particular, while the older age groups, who rely on television, tend to be more conservative and loyal to the government. A growing number of the Russian web-based media outlets have engaged in investigative reporting, disclosing ill-gotten gains of government officials, inadequate health care or distorted COVID statistics. Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent opposition figure, who is currently kept behind bars, in recent years produced a long series of highly popular YouTube videos making allegations of big-time corruption in Russia. His most recent video about the so-called Putin's palace, released by Navalny's team after his arrest, has collected over 110 million views. In Russia, as well as in other countries, political and civic activists have long relied on the Internet for organization, fundraising and information exchange, especially at the time of street protests. In January, about a dozen YouTube channels streamed the protests, including many scenes of police brutality across Russia. Meanwhile, the state television downplayed the protests and ignored the police brutality and later switched to smearing Alexei Navalny and his team. The police has detained dozens of journalists across Russia, but the state is powerless against the dissemination of information, video and otherwise. Over the years, the Russian government has introduced legal and technological restrictions on the Internet communications, and of course the state has used the Internet for its own purposes. Electronic surveillance has become ubiquitous, face recognition and other tools have been used to track down those activists who escaped detention during the mass rallies. My guests today are Tanya Lockett, a researcher at Dublin City University who studies protests, digital media and internet freedom, and Andrei Soldatov, a leading expert on the Russian internet and co-author of The Red Web, a chronicle of the Russian web since its earliest stages. We'll be talking about the internet as an instrument in the heads of the opponents of the Russian regime and as a tool of the increasingly oppressive Russian state. My first question will be to you, Andrei. In your book, you wrote that the Kremlin had overlooked the rise of the internet at its early stages. Can you please talk about it? What time are we talking about? And how would you describe how civil society was using this instrument before the Kremlin got intrusive? And when and why the government began to pay attention? We are talking about two decades. We are talking about the 1990s and 2000s. And that was a moment when the internet was completely free and developed absolutely free with no intervening from the government for several reasons. Uh, one of them was that the Kremlin and Putin personally back then didn't believe that the internet could pose any kind of threat to political stability. Back then, everybody believed in, in the Russian television. That was seen as a weapon of mass destruction and something which can actually change and shape public opinion, but not the internet. Of course, we back then, especially in the 2000s, we already had some places where people actually talk very critical of the Kremlin. Specifically, the platform called Live Journal was extremely important and popular. But to be honest, the 
there's a mood back then was that this platform was used mostly by bloggers and journalists expelled from traditional media. So there was some sense of depression that, well, we are losing our audience, we are losing access to our audience, but at least we can post something on our pages on a live journal, and that would give us some audience. But of course, we do not expect this audience to be really big. That changed only in 2011, when we got the Moscow protests, because all of a sudden, it turned out that lots of people by 2011 were on Facebook and on Twitter, and when they needed to get to the streets and get organized, they understood that Facebook and Twitter actually provide the best means to get organized. Tanya, can you please give us a uh, brief overview of the Kremlin's early attempts to take the internet under control? So as Andrea was telling us, it realized maybe too late that the internet was in the hands of the Kremlin's opponents. How efficient were those early attempts? And would you say that the internet community, if it's okay to call it this, maintained the superiority over the government? I would agree with Andre that I think the very early attempts to take the Russian internet under some form of control were definitely inspired by the street protests and not just in Russia, but also around the world, which the state saw as a kind of threat. And, you know, obviously at, at the point where it began to really closely look at controlling the internet, much of the mainstream media or the media that mattered in any case were already under fairly rigid state control or controlled by people who were friendly to the Kremlin. Um, and the internet, because it developed as a relatively free space and there wasn't centralized ownership of either the infrastructure or the platforms, it was much harder to kind of bring it to heel, so to speak. And so in a sense, you know, the first attempts to police the internet in any shape or form mostly dealt with policing certain content. So trying to block or ban certain kinds of content and targeting specific individuals. And, you know, from from the scholars of, of internet repressions, we know that controls tend to become more sophisticated with time because the first things they try are always the simpler things, the things like taking down or blocking specific content, websites, topics, banning specific discourses, going after specific people whom the government sees as a threat. But I think for the longer time, because the internet was still owned by a bunch of different corporations, a bunch of different platforms, it was quite free. And so people, you know, even if people were feeling under pressure on one platform, they could just move to another platform. And so that, that kept going for some time. So I think the early attempts by the state to persecute internet freedom and free speech were seen as not very efficient because it was kind of like trying to, to kill a fly that is flying around the room. But if there are so many of them, they, they'll just fly and sit on a different wall. So for a long time, the community actually felt quite at ease because they didn't feel like they were out of space to continue those debates and those discourses. Maybe up until kind of the, the middle of you know, 20, 2015, 2014, maybe right before the, pro the, the latest wave of protests in Ukraine, they were still feeling like the internet still afforded them some sort of free space for mobilization, for debate, for discussing all those problematic issues that weren't hitting the pages of the mainstream media. But I think that's when it also kind of started to change. Uh, Tanya, you mentioned 
it was at early stages owned by different platforms. What do you mean and how uh, has this changed over time? Well, so what I mean that even if we look at the Russian sort of segment of the internet, you know, also known as the Runet, for a very long time, ownership was predominantly private. So all of the different emerging uh, websites such as Yandex or, you know, Mail.ru, which later be became such a behemoth, most of them were and some of them still are owned by, by private actors. Platforms like LiveJournal, you know, were founded by progressive media owners, visionaries such as Anton Nosik. And even though they later changed hands, right, so LiveJournal began as, a, as an American platform and then was purchased by a Russian company. And then there was quite a lot of decentralization, unlike, say, main national mainstream media channels, which were all controlled and owned by the same corporations or people who were closely connected to each other. But the Russian internet space, especially in terms of infrastructure ownership, all of the important exchanges or nodes in the system were privately owned or owned by different people or controlled by different people. So that lack of centralization also meant that that space was much freer. And unfortunately, of course, the Russian state came to realize that that was a major issue, not just the presence of the international social media platforms or websites, but also the fact that it wasn't in control of the ownership of certain infrastructure and platforms. Andri, do you agree about this date that Tanya mentioned, 2014 or 2015, when the government bought the internet for real? And what line of attack began later? What was it like? Was it technological? Was it going after owners, redistribution of property, something that we saw as applies to regular or television, print media? Can you describe this process at later stages when the Kremlin realized just how serious the threat, apparently it saw it as a threat, the internet was? So first of all, I completely agree with Tanya about the date, 2014 and 2015 was a really crucial moment for for the Russian offensive on the internet freedoms, partly because the first attempt from 2011 to 2014 was not really successful. Back then, at the first stage, the Russian government believed in the idea of filtering. So what they did, they introduced the system of internet filtering, not very sophisticated, I would say, and nothing comparable with Chinese system. It was very rude, very primitive. They just blocked some pages and some websites and, and they missed the moment when we all actually started getting our news from social media and not from particular websites. And they still blocked websites. And all of a sudden they understood that they have this big elephant in the room, which is global platforms. They understand that they can attack Russian websites and Russian social medias and they can put them under control or they can force them into cooperation or maybe co-op them. But the problem was that they didn't have any means against Facebook, Twitter, or Google. And so this big chunk of, of the internet and the many Russian users, they lived in this, on these platforms. So they were absolutely unbreachable for, for, for the government efforts. Uh, so what they did, they did two things. They decided to teach a lesson to Russian companies and they started with Contacti. And they put it under government control, expelling Pavel Durov, a founder of this network, from the company. And they also introduced a legislation which sort of forced global platforms to become Russian platforms. 
the idea was to force them to relocate the servers, the infrastructure, technical equipment into Russia and to make them accessible for the Russian secret services. And back then, they were not really interested in information because even for the Russian powerful FSB, Russian security service, it's not really feasible to control all emails we exchange, all posts, all messages we exchange. What we wanted to do and what we wanted to get, we wanted to have a phone line, just like in the Soviet times, to have a phone line to, say, CEO of Google and CEO of Facebook and CEO of Twitter. And if something happening, like a new protest wave, they can just pick up a phone and, and make a call and tell them what to do to shut down the network or shut down some parts of the platforms. And they failed miserably. They had some successes with Russian social media, with contacts specifically, but they completely failed with Facebook and Google and Twitter. All these platforms refused to cooperate in full. They agreed to some compromises, but they, they refused to open their communications to the Russian secret services. And it's still the case right now. So there is some cooperation between some global platforms. For instance, you can see some news that some particular videos might be taken down from YouTube. Or you can see some messages that some posts uh, or tweets might be taken down from Twitter, Facebook, but still impossible for the Russian secret services to send a request to Facebook or Twitter and to get communications, so private communications handed over to, to the FSB. I would like you to dwell a bit longer on what happened to Vkontakte, a Russian social network. I wonder whether you agree with me that what happened to this social network and what happened to its founder, Pavel Durov, is not dissimilar to how the government treated conventional media and especially television, imposing a redistribution of media property and it seems also the internet property. Is that right? Uh, you're absolutely right. And to be honest, it was even more dramatic. And uh, if somebody in Hollywood would write such a script, probably it would be dismissed as absolutely unreal because it would be too dramatic. Because what the government did, they replaced Pavel Durov with a son to the CEO of the Russian state television. And you can think, it's, it's impossible. You cannot do that. You cannot have a father in charge of uh, the Russian state television and a son to be in charge of the biggest Russian social media. But in 2014 and 2015, that's exactly what happened. They put the social media, one of the biggest in Russia and one of the most popular, in the hands of a son of the chief of the Russian state television. And it's still there. But what they missed, and I think it's uh, still a crucial point about technology of the internet, is that unlike traditional media and television where content is generated and created by employees of a company, so if you control these employees and you control personal and stuff and CEO, it's enough for you to control the message, well, in social media, it doesn't work this way. And even now we see that Yes, Contacti seems to be completely compromised by its cooperation with Russian security services. We see that 99% of criminal cases against bloggers, they are about something posted on Contacti, and we have only one case about Facebook post. But nevertheless, when something happening in Russia, some small protest or some natural disaster or just some crisis, people will tend to go to Contacti and start posting something absolutely not thinking 
about the government, but nevertheless, they post this information and this information, uncensored information, is still available even on Kontakte. Tanya, how does Russia compare in the way it controls or it seeks to control the internet? And they mentioned the difference between Russia and China in this respect. I think probably Iran is a good example. How different are the ways and means and tricks that the Russian government uses as compared to those other countries? And maybe not just China and Iran. I'm not sure what other countries it makes sense to compare it with. I think there are several key points of comparison here. So China, I think, is the most popular comparative example that people keep bringing up all the time. But I think China's situation is really different simply because its internet from the start developed in a very different way than that in Russia. China, from the start, uh, the state was intent on controlling the internet. And so from the ground up, really, all of the infrastructure, the fact that they have this grand firewall, that's because it was designed that way and built that way from the beginning. Whereas in Russia, you know, as we just said, in 2011 to 2014, the government suddenly realized that, you know, they have this free space where people are debating all sorts of things, where people are able to mobilize and are able to dissent and express their discontent. Up until then, it was that free space. And suddenly there was a, a, a turnaround and the state started trying to exact the same level of control on that free space as they have been on traditional media until then. So I think that for me is a major difference. In China, things are designed to work that way. In Russia, they weren't designed to work that way. But now the state is trying to re-engineer both the discourse and the way the discourse operates on social media and online. And increasingly, it's also trying to change the way the infrastructure that underpins the internet works. And I think some of the more recent examples we've seen with this push for digital sovereignty and with the state aiming to take control not just of the platforms and their decisions about content, but also of the infrastructure of the internet and the internet service providers, that has become more and more obvious. I think with some of the other comparisons, in terms of law enforcement and surveillance, I think Russia is really not that different from even a lot of the Western states, because we like to say that, oh, Russia is a networked authoritarian state, state it controls, it watches its citizens very closely. But I mean, you know, so does the US and so does the UK. And I think Russia has also cottoned on to that. And they actually really like to draw comparisons and examples, because anytime somebody accuses them of surveying their citizens, they're saying, oh, well, look, other developed states do this too. And if somebody says, oh, well, what are you doing? Um, asking companies to adhere to your data localization requirements, they say, well, look, the EU and countries in the EU are also very protective of their citizens' data, and they have legislation about this too, that mandates exactly how companies can store and transport European users' data. So in this sense, I think Russia has really learned to participate in this global debate about how we regulate the internet, and they're actually quite adept at it. Because they know what's going on around the world, they're able to kind of explain their own decisions and they're able to defend some of the decisions they made in terms of how they've re-engineered the Russian internet and in terms of all the legislation that has been passed in the past five years, which is an insane amount of different new laws that regulate every aspect of online life from, from data and data security to digital sovereignty to content to ownership of online media outlets to what is permissible uh, to say online.
I'm glad you said that, and I really would like to hear what Andrei thinks about it. Russia, of course, uses all the state-of-the-art web-based means of the government oppression, such as surveillance and face recognition, and especially as we almost as we speak during this new wave of protests in Russia, face face recognition has been used quite a bit. And we have the police coming to the homes of those who had not been detained during the protests because they recognize their faces and they know where to look for them. So in your view, Andre, how does uh, the Kremlin, how does the Russian regime look compared to other countries as applies to government surveillance? And in Russia, we hear every now and then about the prospect of what the government and what individuals, what people in Russia refer to as cutting off Russia from the world web. Either we hear it either from uh, the Russian government officials saying that this threat uh, may come from the evil West, or actually the Russian government itself, under the pretext of protecting the nation, occasionally talks about cutting off Russia and establishing in Russia something like its own internet separate from the world. So what is your take on that? I think that what we need to remember that over the last 10 years, the Kremlin has been facing a very big challenge. They sort of understand and they're really getting good at it, how to control troublemakers. Because it's, it's a limited amount of people and they can actually... Uh, from the Soviet past, back then it was about, say, at maximum 2,000 dissidents. And the KGB was really good at uh, controlling them and sending them to jail and, and spying on them. The problem is that you can do that, but when you think about the internet, the internet always adds a new dimension to this problem. Okay, you have all this targeted surveillance, all these means, all these databases, blacklist on people who already proved to be politically active. But what you can do, how can you upscale your system of control if something happens which trigger an upsurge in numbers of people who are just now getting political? And that is a big challenge because you cannot do that immediately if your system is designed to deal with, with the troublemakers, say, supporters of Navalny, or political activists, or human rights activists, or this kind of people. So finally, I would say by 2018, 2019, the Kremlin came up with two solutions. First solution is very brutal. The idea that we need to have technical means to cut off a particular region of Russia if something is going on there. For instance, we got protests in Ingushetia going on for months. And some people in the Kremlin might think, well, these protests might trigger some reaction in neighboring regions in the North Caucasus, or maybe even in Moscow. So let's introduce something which would let us technologically cut off this region from the rest of the country. Or we see Habarovsk protest. Again, we need to cut off this region from the rest of the country because some people in other region might get some ideas about uh, their own process in their regions. That's one approach. And they almost succeeded at building up this system. And now we have a system of control. And actually, it's, it's coordinated from Moscow and a special building was built just to manage this system. The other approach is, is a bit more subtle, and I would say, in the long run, much more Chinese-like. And the idea is to force Russian 
ordinary internet users, people who do not think about politics at all right now, their grandparents who just have their smartphones, to live in a bubble of Russian-made applications. And that's exactly what's going on right now. We have a new legislation approved last year, which introduced a new idea that if you buy a smartphone in Moscow or in another Russian city, you get with it a number of pre-installed Russian applications. You need your email service. Okay, it would be provided by a Russian company. You need a search engine. Again, it would be provided by a Russian company and so on and so forth. The idea behind it is if these ordinary citizens, just users of the internet, see something which triggers this uh, reaction, but we need to post something immediately, like they see some natural catastrophe or some protest, they have no other means but to turn to Russian-made applications. And these applications are already under control of the government. And let's see how successful they could be, because these uh, legislation coming in force in April. So I think in a year, probably, and I think I would uh, love to pick up what Tatiana thinks about it, uh, maybe in a year time, we could see how successful they, they get. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I, I agree with Andre that, that this push for preemptive control, as opposed to trying to persecute people who have already done some trouble, is actually quite clever. Because, you know, as we know, the majority of internet users are people who don't have particular high levels of digital literacy. They get a new phone, and if it's a certified phone, it comes with pre-installed applications. They're unlikely to start uploading like VPN apps or Telegram onto it. They're just going to use whatever's there. And I think in the same way, right, so it's in a way the state is trying to preemptively shape our digital habits habits uh, or the digital habits of Russian citizens. And I think that's very clever because um, unlike, you know, creating mechanisms to shut down the internet, this is much less confrontational. And it's, in fact, it looks like the state is saying, oh, well, well look, we, we care about your safety. We want you to only use stuff that's verified and secure. So we've passed this law that uh, obliges all smartphone makers to, to pre-install stuff on their phones. The other question is whether the smartphone companies will agree to this. But obviously, you know, Russia is quite a large market. It's certainly not the largest market, but, you know, it's going to be a business issue there. I think these more, as Andre says, these more subtle kind of avenues are, I think, are going to encounter a lot less resistance because most people just don't understand why digital rights advocates are suddenly saying, oh, no, this is a bad idea. And the Russian state has tried to do something similar with promoting the creation of local variants of any kind of social media platform. They haven't been as successful because obviously, you know, if you're already using Facebook and YouTube and, and Telegram, it's unlikely that you're going to switch to a Russia-built or state-sponsored search engine or application or music service or video service. But they keep trying and they keep doing it. Given the role YouTube seems to have played in, in the recent protests, the state is really keen on builds uh, a YouTube competitor it's unclear if they will succeed or you know how how good this website will look and feel compared to YouTube. But I think they're aware that this is yet another way to change people's habits online and just to change you know what the the norm is in terms of internet use because it's a much less confrontational option than saying oh we're going to do internet shutdowns in the regions, which you know again is something that's used across the world and we've seen it even in the last twelve months we've seen internet shutdowns across the world during elections, during natural disasters, during all sorts of protests. So I'm pretty sure they're going to keep developing that technology as well. And, you know, they not like they haven't tried to do so already. 
let's get back to um, people's side. And I would like you, Tanya, to go back in time a little bit. You agreed that the Russian government grew more concerned about the internet around 2012, but Arab Spring probably was the first moment when the world realized how important a tool, how effective a tool the internet is at the time of a mass protest. Well, right now, of course, we have protests in Russia, and we'll get to this shortly, but very recently, there were major protests in Belarus continuing as we speak, but not on the same scale. So how would you describe maybe the rise in sophistication? Is there a rise in sophistication in how people can use the internet, can use the web at the time of a mass protest from 2011 or Arab Spring to last year, the height of the protest in Belarus? We are certainly talking about a greater proportion of the population becoming aware of the different tools. This varies by country. I think in Belarus, you know, people certainly started learning very quickly about, you know, what it means to have at least partially encrypted conversations and also what it means to install technologies that will allow you access to resources that are banned. So installing, you know, VPN applications I think that has become fairly clear that people are, are, you know, a greater proportion of the people know more about how to circumvent uh, censorship in that way. I think for me, Belarus is interesting because quite a lot of the mobilization that happened on, on the internet probably wouldn't have happened without also on the ground mobilization and people actually seeing the numbers on the ground. I think there's a direct connection there. It's also interesting to see that most of this mobilization happened in messengers, whether it's Telegram or, or Viber or uh, WhatsApp, which is somewhat different from places that are arguably public, like Facebook and, and Twitter. I mean, they're partially public, but at least there's a lot more visibility, whereas messenger groups and chats are much more private spaces and Uh, they're much more ephemeral in the sense that unless you have somebody who is joining the group, it's very hard to actually intercept what is happening in them. Not impossible, but more difficult. And, you know, people can also destroy messages. So I think for me, that was one thing that was really new about Belarus. The other thing I think was the role of the diaspora, if, if you will, you know, a great number of Belarusian activists who have already been living abroad or who had to leave and continued to participate and, and mobilize other people who were still on the ground. I think that was for me also one thing that was somewhat different because you know, we've seen this in other countries like Iran during the Green Revolution earlier in 2009 and 10, but I don't think we've seen it to the same extent, for instance, in, say, in any of the Russian protests, to some extent in the Ukrainian protests, but Belarus, I think, was a really interesting case. But I do think that, you know, for the majority of people in Belarus, it's still not really about the level of sophistication, but rather just that they were able to see the scale of the protests, right? Because Belarus was very different in that protests happened in small cities, big cities, very tiny towns. And that was what was really interesting. And so that network of local telegram groups, which then those information flows where people could observe that, you know, these protests are happening simultaneously across many, many places across Belarus and also around the world was what was really important. So I think it's partially sophistication, but partly also, you know, that these networks enabled visibility of, of the protests across Belarus and, and therefore they played a big part in mobilization. 
Andre, from this perspective, how do Moscow protests current, almost as we speak, look to you? The sophistication, how different it might be from Belarus or other places where people uh, during mass protests are using the internet? I think it's uh, really very interesting because by the end of 2020, we came to a very interesting moment in terms of uh, what's going on with the Russian internet. First of all, YouTube became really, really big. And it's not only about people in big cities, it's also about people who are, say, pensioners. Uh, we have lots of people who exchange and share videos on WhatsApp groups, sometimes long videos, and it's like a pan new pandemic. Everybody's sharing these things. And it started before the protests. The other thing, which is a bit more depressing, is that we have a new stage with, say, Pavel Durov's journey. And uh, by 2020, specifically by the summer of 2020, things came to seem very gloomy for lots of people who supported Pavel Durov and his new venture, Telegram Messenger, because actually 2020 marked his big return to Russia. And suddenly Telegram is unblocked and the deputy head of uh, Telegram was on the stage with uh, the Russian Prime Minister. Pavel Durov seems to be in the mood to support some of the government actions against, uh, for instance, Apple, attacking Apple in, in what seems to be a coordinated attack on, on Apple. So, of course, lots of Russian digital uh, rights activists got really suspicious of Telegram. And finally, the third element, which was really interesting, and I don't see the, that we saw that, uh, that in, in Minsk, as lots of very young people became really interested in political things. And that is why TikTok became really important. Navalny himself, I think, joined TikTok in, in the spring of 2020. And actually, he didn't know what to do about that. And his very first post was, well, okay, I joined it. And then what I'm supposed to do? Even the Russian opposition didn't know what to do there. And all of a sudden, by December... We got lots of videos, lots of things on TikTok, very political. And specifically, I would say that videos with very young Russian girls teaching people how to, for instance, how to pretend to be American, to avoid arrest, they just went viral. And everybody saw that, not only in Russia, but in many countries, because it's so, it's so attractive, it's so interesting, and so... It's really, it's, it's alive. And I think that is a new dimension. And, and to some extent, it uh, provides some ammunition for the Kremlin propaganda when they insist that Navalny gets young people and kids on streets and blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, it reflects this new reality that we are dealing with a new generation of Russians who suddenly became interested in political things. And for that, we, we are choosing a new network. And it's not something we knew from 2011, 2012. It's not Facebook. It's not uh, Contact. It's not Twitter. It's, it's TikTok. And it's clear that next year, it might be something completely different. Might be not TikTok. Might be something else. Which means that in this race, which we have the government and the protesters, technology would always provide with new, well, with new means, with new technologies. And it would be really difficult to catch up for the government. Thank you, Andrei. You took us very logically to my last question. How do you guys see the future of this standoff or this competition between citizens and the state, in, and especially in non-democratic countries such as Russia or Belarus? Daniel, would you please start? I think Andrei made a, a lot of really interesting points. As we see more young people become involved in politics, those younger generations are always seemingly the most savvy in terms of using any new technology that comes on board. 
it's, it's going to become increasingly challenging for the government to really be able to control those spaces because very often they have no idea how those spaces operate, what their grammar is, you know, what, what their mechanisms for going viral are. And so, you know, as always, they will be left with the very blunt tools of, you know, blocking an, an application wholesale, banning it for some time or shutting down the internet. And I think to some extent, you know, to me, it seems like the advantage is still on the side of the citizens here because it is increasingly easier to learn about how to operate a VPN app, you know, even if you aren't necessarily a, a white hat hacker or, you know, you, you aren't a digital rights activist. Um, information is becoming increasingly easier to find online. And I think what's also important is that many people today in Russia or in Belarus would probably be really upset if a bunch of social media applications and messengers were blocked wholesale, not only because that would prevent them from political expression, but because it's such an ingrained part of their life. You know, that's where you exchange recipes, that's where you download books, that's where you find new music to listen to, that's where most of our lives are. So I think that would be additional motivation for the state not to block things wholesale because they realize the implications of blocking whole platforms like Facebook or YouTube and the absolute uproar it would cause and or also blocking particular encrypted protocols because it's not just social media platforms that depend on these protocols, but also the banking industry, the financing and, and a lot of other sectors. So I think that the fact that the internet is such an inseparable part of life is actually making it harder for the state to engage you know, in this rhetoric of claiming that they're doing this in the name of national security, because it's becoming harder and harder for citizens to believe that. Thank you, Tanya. I think um, your line, um, the advantage is on the side of the citizens, is a very good uh, um, end line of our conversation. Andre, would you agree with this line? Seems like you do. To some extent, I think I would actually divide this into two parts. First of all, I think that the government's are really good and they are winning in times of political stability. They actually, they are getting really good at unmasking protesters and activists online. They are really good at policing behavior online and extracting information about our habits, about our personalities. And it's actually, it's, it has something to do with uh, actually teaching us as animals to some extent, how we need to behave. And we see that in China, we see it in, in many other countries. Uh, we see that the governments are getting really good at exchanging their experiences. And we know some examples where not only Russia actually picked up some lessons from China, but China picked up something from Russia. For instance, we are using now volunteers groups to police the internet, and they got this from Russia. The governments also became really good at convincing and making and cooperating with global platforms at making the, uh, the internet more localized and uh, they are forgetting now about what actually the, the internet should be global and that's the main thing is the main future of the internet now it's getting all about your neighbor about, about your district about your city because everybody is interested to make it local as uh, the government's platforms and these days you go you type google and you go to google.ru not because the government tells uh, Google do that, but because Google is interested to, to provide you with a localized picture of what is going on online. So in times of political stability, I think it's a bit depressing for proponents of freedom, but 
I think what is really interesting that if something happens, any kind of crisis, well, the situation, the picture is changing completely and dramatically because what the internet technology gives you is it allows you to expand your audience dramatically from few thousands of people to millions. And that could be done just in a click, sometimes in, the, in an hour time. And when something happening, people just have this urge to find some platform and they can choose it randomly they can choose twitter or they can choose tiktok or they can choose something nobody heard of just to spread the message and then there is no government in the world which is ready for that and i don't think it could change in, in the near future thank you very much still um, i thank you andre for ending on an upbeat tone <laughs> even though you showed some skepticism thank you tanya and thank you andre for thank a very you. interesting conversation